So um, tonight we edify the church. That's the title of what we're looking at tonight. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So you turn there, 1 Corinthians 14. And tonight we are talking about tongues. So this is a fun one. It's a hotly debated one. And it's one that we have never, at least to my recollection, we've never really touched on this topic, at least in depth in our church. Do you get, I don't, I don't think so. Um, it's also been something that I think will come up in the future again. I know that we're in a town that really does enjoy um, the more charismatic side of things. They do enjoy the tongues and the healings and prophecies and things like that. And so I think naturally we are going to face some of these conversations in the future. Now, tonight, the purpose of the passage is not a debate about tongues, and so to stay true to the text, at least in the context of our study right now about who we are as a church, we're going to stay with the principles that are here that we need to edify the church. And I think that's going to be really clear. That said, tonight is not a discussion primarily about whether tongues or the other sign gifts are for today or if they're not. I don't believe that they are. And for the sake of our conversation tonight, just go with me on that. Later, we can talk about why. And I want to I have some, some really good reasons why I don't believe that they are for today, and I want to give you those reasons later. Um, I want to write them out so that maybe I can say it clearer, and then I can finish like mulling through some of those details. But then once I'm done with that, I will give it to you, and then you'll have that resource. And whenever someone asks you, why don't you believe in tongues? Or why does, at the very least, why does your church not believe that tongues is for today? <clears throat> now you'll have the reason that our church doesn't believe in tongues. But for the purpose of this conversation tonight, um, I can at the very least give you this promise, that when you think of the word tongues, you probably think of people falling on the ground, you probably think of people being slain in the spirit, you probably think of the requirement, at least if you've listened to Jimmy Swagger or other pure Pentecostals, you believe, you maybe think of the belief that tongues is evidence of salvation. It's what they would call the baptism in the spirit. And if you're not baptized in the spirit, then you're not truly saved. And every Christian has that gift of tongues if they're truly saved, which is clearly not biblical. Um, so I think at least at the extreme least level, we can all agree that tongues as practiced in mainstream charismatic churches is not the biblical picture of tongues in the very least. And we're going to talk through some of those details tonight because there's, in this chapter, Paul gives us some rules for when to and when not to speak in tongues. So this is the authoritative passage on tongues. And I do want to say this too. In my work to develop this sermon tonight, I had to start about a month ago to really start working through these verses because there's a lot here. And I tried not to just go with people that I agree with, but I actually tried to find a bunch of resources with people I don't agree with so that I understand their perspective on it. And even the people I disagree with still come to the same conclusions that we are going to tonight, which I think is an even bigger testimony to the fact that the Bible is plain, it's understandable, and it's clear. And if we treat it as such, we're going to walk away with the right principles and the right understanding about what God has for us. So without further ado, let's get into it tonight. We edify the church. And our key takeaway tonight is to build up the church or edify with your spiritual gifts. Build up the church with your spiritual gifts. 
Now, Paul here in chapter 14 gives some instructions for how to do that. Number one, he kind of gives you the goal. The whole goal of this passage is to build up the church the best way you can. So the goal is to build up the church as the best way you can. And that's found throughout the first 19 verses. So let's look through those real quick. And by the way, he's going to go from concept in these first 19 verses to specifics. So he's going to give you a couple ideas. Here's why we believe in this. Here's what the goal is. And then now I'm going to show you later in our second point, the actual ways to do this, the specifics. Okay. Verse one, follow after love, which would hark back to what we talked about last time, the um, chapter 13, the great love chapter. Follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, again, let's define prophecy. That is the foretelling or forthtelling. So foretelling is forecasting the future. Forthtelling is saying what God has said. Today, we already know what the future holds because the book of Revelation, the Thessalonians, those were already written. So we know what is coming in the future. So now as it, appear, as it <coughs> applies to us as Christians, Prophecy means to say what God said, a.k.a. to preach, to pastor. So, for he, verse 2, For he who speaks in an unknown tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, although in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks to men for their edification and exhortation and comfort. So, preaching should be edifying, should be building you up. It should exert it should exhort you, which means to encourage you in the way that you should go, and to comfort. So I think sermons are a great source of comfort. In my life's in my life's darkest moments, I will go find YouTube sermons and listen to them. And the darker the times, the more sermons I listen to. It just good sermons should provide comfort. They should show you that not only this is the right way and that God has you, but also you're on the right path. And I think sometimes as Christians we need that reassurance too. Verse 4, he who speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself. That means he lifts himself up. And it doesn't even mean in a bad way. It's not necessarily in pride, necessarily. I think it can be, as we're going to see. But in a lot of ways, at this time, to speak in tongues was a way that you as a Christian could build up your own faith. Because how else do you speak in a language you don't know without faith? Clearly, it's important. So you edify yourself, but he who prophesies or preaches edifies the church. I desire that you all speak in tongues, but even more that you prophesy. Now, by the way, here, some Baptists would be like, listen, we don't, we don't believe that tongues was even a very helpful gift to begin with. Well, 5,000 people the first day that Christianity came out and was released to the public would disagree with you. Tongues was very potent. It was very helpful. It was a great sign. And Paul even wished that the Corinthians had the gift of tongues, every one of them, but he desired far more that they should all want to preach. For greater is he who prophesies than he who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edification. Now verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you by revelation or knowledge or prophesying or doctrine? So if I'm saying some words to you, how does that help you unless they're spiritually filled words? Meaning, some people could get up and say a bunch of random gibberish, sounds familiar, and it not be spiritual. And if it's not spiritual, then all you said was random gibberish. So what profit does that have, Paul asks. 
Verse 7, even when things without life give sound, whether flute or harp, how will it be known what is played unless they give a distinction in the sounds? If the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for the battle? So also you, unless with the tongue you speak words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the ear. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, do you know there's over a million ways, like dialects? There's thousands and thousands of languages, but if you break all of those languages down into their dialects, earlier we were talking about Ohioan language versus my my mom's Chicagoan language versus ours versus Stephanie's. Like, that's all English, and yet here we are breaking apart that one language into six different dialects in just our conversation. How does that work? Well, there's millions. So none of those are without significance, the Bible says. And for tongues to be truly biblical, you'd be able to speak in any one of those, and your interpreter would have to understand whichever one of those it was. So there are millions of languages that the interpreter would have to know. Clearly, this is just from God. He says, therefore, verse 11, if I do not know the meaning of the speech, I shall be a barbarian or a stranger, I guess, to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So seeing that you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. If you're going to get a spiritual gift, he says, let it be something that actually helps, not that just wastes time. Verse 13, let him who speaks in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. He says, if you're going to speak in tongues, even if you're in your prayer closet and you're praying alone in tongues, great, your spirit's doing it, but how does that help you? It's, it's literally unfruitful to everyone who does it unless there's interpretation. So pray that you interpret. Verse 15, what is it then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Otherwise, when you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the unlearned say amen at your giving of thanks, seeing he does not understand what you say? For you indeed gave thanks well, but excuse me, the other is not edified. Verse 18, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Now, this right here is the pinnacle of his argument. If you're going to say something in the church service, this might not be for your own personal worship. This might not be in your own prayer time. But if you're going to say in the church service with other people, let it be edifying to the other people in the room. If not, you're just wasting time. And it'd be better for the one guy in the back to say five helpful words than for you to preach a beautiful, eloquent sermon of 10,000 that no one gets. And I think, by the way, in today's culture, it would be good if preachers could say five wise words instead of 10,000 fruitless ones. Verse 20. That begins our new section. So we've talked about the goal, and that is to build up the church the best way you can. And the best way, in Paul's estimation, that you could was with the gift of prophecy, with the gift of preaching. The second part is the method. The method. Serve with your gifts with decency and order. 
Serve with your gifts with decency and order. In verses 28 through the end of the chapter in 30, I'm sorry, verses 20 through 38, they kind of bring all of this together. And I have 11 little things right there. So we're going to go through them kind of rapid fire. The first one is the longest, and then it, it speeds up after that. Letter A, tongues are assigned to unbelievers. Tongues are assigned to unbelievers. Verses 20 through 25, it says this. He's going to make kind of a longer argument, so stick with me. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. That means don't be immature. Rather be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. What that means is a child um, is innocent, and a child has an innocent mind. And so to say something evil to a child might not even register with the kid. And that's okay. He says, in that way, in the in sense of evil, be childlike, have an innocent mind. But in your thinking, in your logic, and in the way that you carry yourself, be, be mature. In verse 21, he gives an illustration of the principle about tongues. He says, in the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I, God, will speak to this people. But even then they will not hear me, says the Lord. So tongues are for a sign, not to believers, but to unbelievers. But prophesying does not serve unbelievers, but believers. So if I were to go out and preach to a bunch of people who don't, like if I were to stand up at a karaoke bar and preach into the microphone, how helpful is that going to be to the listeners? They're not there to hear God's word. But if I were to prophesy or to preach to you guys, that's much more valuable. Same way, if I were to talk to you guys about things that you couldn't understand, that doesn't really help you. But if I were to go speak in a language to a foreigner and he understands the gospel through me, that would be valuable to him. Verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assemblies, I'm sorry, assembles into one place and speaks with tongues and those who are unlearned or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Doesn't that sound familiar? You see any of those churches on TV, you see any of those Instagram videos of all the people slain in the spirit and they're throwing modesty claws over the skirts of the women and, and they're all jolting on the floor and mumbling sayings. That's out of your mind and you're a Christian and you think that. How much more then do the outsiders who don't even believe in Jesus think that? They don't even know about the gift of tongues. Those Christians are weird. Verse 24, but if all prophesy and there comes in one who does not believe or one, un, uh, or one unlearned, he is convinced by all and judged by all. That means that prophecy is, it's helpful. Verse 25, thus the secrets of his heart are revealed and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Even an unbeliever who sees a room full of people who want to talk about the Bible that's profitable to him. Not profitable, though, if all of you are speaking in tongues, especially the way that we would see today. So that's the first one. Letter A, tongues are assigned to unbelievers. Letter B, every part of the service must edify the whole church. Every part of the service must edify the whole church. And the emphasis here is that every single part needs to. If you look at verse 6, he says, How is it then, brothers, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, and an interpretation. How, do you, how does every single time we get to church, everybody wants to share something? What is wrong with you guys? He says. Let all things be done for edification. I can remember in like a WANA 
there was always a couple kids who just always wanted to talk about something. And they, you know what I'm talking about? It's just the kind of person who near, he, he needs to share something every time he gets around other people. In prayer breakfast, there were some people who just every single time they would interrupt the sermon, they would, or maybe interrupt the prayer time, and they'd tell a story and tell you about how this applies to this. And they always had to tell a joke. They always have to give testimony. Whether it's relevant to the conversation, to the passage of Scripture or not, they have to be heard. That's the same thing that happened in Corinth. And how is it then, brothers, Paul says? In his refutation of this, is to let all things be done for edification. Verse 27 teaches us this, only two or three speakers of tongues may speak per service. So that's letter C. Only two or three speakers of tongues may speak per service. Verse 27, he says, if anyone speaks in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. So that's the second part. So letter C, only two or three speakers of tongues may speak per service. Letter D, one person must interpret everything said in, in tongues. So you can have one, or well, technically you could have zero to three people per service who speak in tongues, period. Now, if you were to look at the modern tongues movement, doesn't matter what branch of it you see, Almost never, not going to say never, because there are a few churches that practice it decently in an order. Almost never is it just one or two or three people. And even more almost never are they in turn. If they're in turn, there are a few churches um, that even I've heard of and, and that do practice this more wisely. And so they will have only a few people come up and teach or speak in tongues, and they'll have them go one by one. Anything else, not of God. Direct opposition to Scripture. So if anyone wants to argue tongues, just ask him, well, do you do it one by one? Do you only have up to three people who speak in tongues per service? If the answer is no to either of those, then that is not of God, and they need to repent of their direct disobedience to Scripture. Next up. Letter E, if there's no interpreter, tongues must wait. He says in verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, let him remain silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. That's it. Now, I've never, ever in my life, I have never seen someone who's had an interpretation of tongues. Now, I've seen lots of people who've said that they speak in tongues. But there have been two times when I've had a conversation with a charismatic believer who told me that their church practices interpretation. They were two separate churches. Good on them. Now, how many interpreters do they have in the church per service? Because as of the last verse, it was limited to one. Now, if everyone who gets up and speaks tongues gives their own interpretation, now again, they are outside of the confines of Scripture. So that's not legal. So there's only one, and if there isn't an interpreter, then they should sit down and not talk to anyone but themselves and God, unless they're going to talk in English or whatever their language is. Now, verse 29 teaches us letter F. Churches must limit themselves to two or three preachers per service. 
says, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Prophets meaning those who prophesy and those who prophesy are the readers and teachers of scripture. So let two or three preachers speak. Now keep in mind here, there's another aspect of this. Corinth was in a time of tribulation. Remember that? Corinth was in a time where they were being oppressed. And so was it a normal service like we would hold in a normal in a normal church today? Or even like many of the other churches would hold back then? No. It would not be one preacher or something like that. Often it was more like what we would think of as like a home group or something like that. Because all of the what used to meet in one spot in Corinth would have split off into many different churches. And we're going to see that in just a few seconds with another verse. So in that way... If there's not necessarily a preacher, if there's not a pastor who is called to pastor every single one of those little home groups, then of course, naturally, there would be a couple people who would maybe take over. If I just died, then I'm assuming you guys would be the ones to take up the reins. And maybe one of you would preach, maybe one of you would teach, maybe both of you would. But at some point, there's got to be a limit to how many of the preachers can preach at one service. And that makes sense because time is real. Because of that, let's move on to our next one. Letter G. The whole congregation must judge everyone who says he speaks on behalf of God, a.k.a. a prophet, whether his words align with Scripture. He says this in verse 30. If anything is revealed to another that sits by, let the first keep silent. That means if you have more than one preacher and he's going long-winded and he just wants to share all night long, If there's another man on docket to speak that night, sit down, shut up, and let him come up and speak, because it's his turn now. Next verse, verse 31, For you may all prophesy one by one, again, not at the same time, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. The spirits, I'm sorry, look at the second half of verse 29. I skipped some stuff. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. That means that everyone else in the church is supposed to judge the words of the preacher. And it's when we don't do that, when we just accept what a pastor says as truth, that we actually get ourselves in trouble. And we can't do that. I don't want you to do that with the words that I say. And I don't do that with the words that any other preacher or pastor says ever. And we shouldn't because the Bible tells us right here not to. That means go study. Go learn. Okay. So I skipped some verses. Let's come then. Letter H. Preachers should not, I'm sorry, preachers should end their message in time for the next one. We just looked at that in verse 30. If another guy has the next slot, then he's up. Letter I. Preachers must remain in control of themselves. Wow. First off, this is not just a charismatic problem. This is in many of our own churches. Preachers don't act like themselves. Verse 32, look at it. He says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. That means that the spirit of the prophet is in control of the prophet. What that means is that my mind should be in control under me. I should be able to control myself whenever I preach. If I were to start 
changing the way that I did things. Okay, if I were a normal person, you guys know my personality. If I just stood up and shouted and screamed and raised my fist and pounded everything and started yelling at everyone and running across the, the stage and jumping off the pulpit, you'd think that's weird for me because it's not who I am. But there's some people who just have that kind of bombastic, crazy personality and they don't care. So if they were to do that, that would be kind of normal for them. And that's okay. But I'm not that way. And for me to act like something I'm not means I'm not in control of myself. I'm trying to be someone else. Whether that someone else is of God, whether it's another preacher, or whether it's not a godly spirit who is in control of me, but an unholy spirit who would be in control. That is a, that's something worth testing. And the spirits of the prophets should be under control of the prophets. So, for those of us who will ever preach or teach, make sure that you're in control of yourself when you're speaking. Next up. Letter J, women must never speak in tongues or interrupt a preacher. There it is. Verse 34 and 35. Let your women remain silent in the churches. Now, remember, this is in the context of what we've talked about. The two gifts that we're dealing with is tongues, his least favorite, and prophecy, his favorite. In the arena of tongues, remember he told the men, if you're going to speak in tongues then wait until the other one is done, and then you can have up to two or three people doing tongues in order, one by one. And he says, like, once you're done with it, then stay silent. Well, here he uses a different word for silent. Let your women remain silent in the churches. That means an ultimate silence, a, a not a temporary for a time silence until it's your turn to speak. This is a remain silent, totally silent. They're two different words in the original language. Therefore, this verse means in the context of preaching and of tongues, women should not speak out loud. Now, does that mean that you cannot say amen in a service if you're a woman? No, it doesn't. Because look at the next verse. For they are not permitted to speak. That word speak is different than just speaking. It means, as we would say today, to speak authoritatively. Which means that in the corporate setting of a church, women are not supposed to speak authoritatively. That would mean they're not supposed to be the ones preaching the message. They're not supposed to be the ones delivering the message through tongues. Oh, you see how those two go together? They're not supposed to speak authoritatively to positions that would be filled by the men who do tongues and prophecy. They are commanded to be under obedience, as the law also says which means that, again, under her husband, or if she's not married, under, under who would be her husband if she were married. If they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. That's it. Doesn't mean that you can't ask questions of a pastor. Doesn't mean that you can't, you know, like in a home group setting or in a home church setting, do things that would be like that. Like we talked about the home group where the girl read from Ephesians and taught through that. It, she wasn't wrong for doing that. She was clearly under the authority of her husband, but it also wasn't the church service. Now, if she were doing the same thing and preaching the message out of Ephesians on Sunday, she's clearly out of line by this passage. So where does the distinction happen? Well, if you go back to chapter 11, the first 17 verses, or the first 16 verses of chapter 11, deal with men and women in the church. Chapter 11, verse 17 begins 
the church services in the church. There's a difference in Christians and Christians who are part of a church service. And as Christians, women are free to do many things. But Christian women in a church service are not free to do all of the same things. Because in that case, she would be, as 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about, usurping her authority over men by teaching them. And that's not okay with the Bible. So, women should remain silent in the churches. That means they should not prophesy. They should not speak in tongues. And as it mentions, let them ask their husbands. So if you have a question in the middle of a sermon, don't raise your hand and ask. I think we've probably all seen things like that where a woman will just interrupt the preacher out of nowhere, or a person will interrupt the preacher and just start talking back, you know, not even in a rebellious way, just answering like, what? (laughs) It's weird. So say amen if you want. And in our church, that's not a stopping thing, but at the same time, don't, you know, stop the service just because you have a question. And of course, some people would have a problem with this. And that's where letter K comes in. Scripture rules regardless of your opinion. Scripture rules regardless of your opinion. Verses 36 through 38. He says, what? I think that's number three, this book. What? Did the word of God come from you? Or did it come to you only? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. That means, verse 36, basically, if you're a spiritual person, then you're going to understand that this is from God. Verse 37, or verse 38, if you don't care about what's spiritual and you don't care about the fact that it's from God, then just don't care. I don't care. Paul said, I'm not here to fight a fight with you. If you've determined in your mind to be ignorant, then you just stay that way. I hope that you have a good life. And that's brutal and that's harsh, but I think we are in a place where there's people who disagree with us, and someday they're just going to keep disagreeing with us. And even if they come into our church and they disagree with us from the inside, okay, you made up your mind. I'm not going to fight you on that. So go and do what you want to do, but you just, you're not doing it here. And that's why verse 39, he sums up the whole thing. Therefore, brothers, remember he's speaking to those who are spiritual, not the ignorant. Therefore, brothers, eagerly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So what do we do with that as a Baptist church in the 21st century? We don't forbid speaking in tongues. I don't. We won't. Our church as a policy does not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, we do forbid tongues when it, according to this passage, there's no interpreter. It's out of order in the service, which would be probably the hardest part for them to get in. It's interrupting the preaching. We forbid tongues when it doesn't edify the entire church, when it's rambling and unending, when it's by a woman when its interpretation opposes scripture, when it reveals any form of new truth, when it prophesies in the foretelling type, when it's chaotic, when it's confusing or not peaceful, when it's done to prove a point out of malice, which would happen, or when it's not used primarily for a sign to unbelievers. That's when we forbid tongues, according to this passage, which categorically wipes out all of the tongues that I've ever heard of experienced in the modern era. Now, is it, is it possible that God can use it? Sure, which is why we don't forbid it, as Paul would say. But is it probable? And is it common for it to be done that way? Absolutely not. Therefore, we forbid tongues when it's like that. And by the way, as a policy, if someone were to start speaking in tongues and it 
breaks any one of those rules in our church, then we will follow the Matthew principle of going to the person and telling them, hey, listen, I know you didn't mean anything by that in a bad way, but this is what the Bible says, and this is what we do. If they refuse that, we bring another person, and we tell them that. If they refuse that, then we bring them before the church, and we say, listen, this person continues to speak in tongues, as I'm sure you have all noticed, and this is what we have to say with that. You have one more chance to repent of that and to move forward according to Scripture. And if at that point they remain, they remain ignorant, then let them be ignorant, have, have a nice life, and there's a Pentecostal church down the road that you, I'm sure, would fit in great. But our church doesn't break the Bible, and that's what it teaches. So there's some principles to walk away with, and then I'm done. Number one, your spiritual gifts should edify the church. And I say that in a few different senses, but you get the gist. Your spiritual gift should edify the church, which would imply that you're using it. It would also imply that you're using it for the right reasons. So make sure that your spiritual gifting is actually being used by the church. Number two, God-ordained order. I think as a rule specific to this conversation, that's really important to remember because the charismatic version of tongues and the biblical version of tongues, one's of order and the other is of disorder, and we're not cool with the disorder because God's not a God of disorder. He's the author of good. He's the author of peace, not of chaos and confusion. But he's the same God of order and peace in our lives. And so when our lives are disorderly, when our conduct is disorderly and confusing and chaotic, we are not reflecting God's holiness. So make sure that we also are orderly. And number three, view everything through the Bible's lens. I think if there's a single lesson that I've learned this year, it's really this one. Start viewing everything through the Bible. Not the things that are spiritual. Everything. I found myself a few weeks ago... And we were on our way home from somewhere, and I'll leave you, I'll be done after this. Um, We were on our way home somewhere from a store or restaurant or something, and Skylar was telling me about the principal at her school and how he had slept with one of the teachers. And my question was, it was genuinely this, and I caught myself in that moment, like, what is wrong with you? My question was, Why was that a problem? Why was it a problem for the principal to be sleeping with one of the teachers while he was married? And now my framework was like through the lens of a school board. Why did they care? Like it's not affecting his performance at work. It's not changing what he's doing. But the fact that it even registered in my mind to question whether that was right or wrong should not have ever been a thing. And that's one of those tiny little examples in life where we just take something and we look at it not from God's lens of a man should be married to his woman for life, but I looked at it through the lens of a school board. But that's not why I was created, and that's not why I was saved. I'm not a school board. I'm a Christian. So why would I look at it from the wrong lens? But then how much do we do the exact same thing with all kinds of other situations? And if God's a God of order... And if he saved you to be under the order of the cross, then why not look like it? So those are my practical takeaways from this passage and just some things that God used to speak to me. So let's pray, and then we will get out of here. God, thank you for tonight.